The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, with John Bone. John Bone? (laughs) With John Bon Jovi here. You know where my mind is. Hi, John. You know what the sad part is? Is we are both so tired. It was a late night, man. I I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning, um, went to the day job, and then got off and did a show. Yep. And came home and got like a couple of hours of rest to come back here. So I got. I have a shout out though. Uh, this this goes out to uh, her. Uh, I guess her call name or whatever. She's not a call girl. Moniker. That's it. Yeah. Is Living Doll, and she's out of Tampa, Florida, and she got a hold of the show um, via the Facebook page. Oh, okay. And we had a good conversation. Uh, she she's enjoying it. She corresponds with uh, with Keith as well. Um, really really nice chick, man. She list, she started listening listening to the show on her walks in the morning. Oh, that's cool. And she was like, I didn't mean to wake you up type of thing. It's like, uh, you didn't. I'm, I'm awake anyway because it's, you know, three hours ahead in Tampa. Right. Well, and it cracks me up because, <laughs> you know, people always say, sorry to wake you up. No. That would that would yeah. imply that I sleep. I know. That's what I was going to say. That would say that you and I sleep occasionally. <laughs> So today we got uh, Keith Jesperson calling back into the show so we can yes. continue his story. And we, well, we'll just let you guys figure this out with the call in. Let's get yeah. to the call. Good morning, Keith. Hello. Good morning. What's so good about it? No, <laughs> That's because we're going on no sleep, man. Stop saying good morning, Scott. <laughs> yeah, good morning, Vietnam, right? Right. Oh, yeah. It, <laughs> it was, feels like it. <laughs> it was It was a late night for both of us last night. Uh, I uh, We had a last-minute booking, so we did a show last night. I got in at one thirty in the morning. Or got to, yeah, got to like 1 in the morning or so. And, yeah, and he was, So, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much. You know, I, I wanted to get back to uh, uh, what we were talking about last time. Uh, you're, you know, I mentioned to you over the phone call before about my ex-wife said something about a canal. Yeah. And I'm just curious. I'm curious about where she said she left me from in her house. Because in May of 1988, mm-hmm. we actually moved from Toppenish, from the, uh, the home where... They said the cat thing was. Uh, we moved from there to uh, my dad's double-wide mobile home next to his house out on Wiley City, uh, which is like west of Yakima. Because oh, apparently... And there was no canal there. Oh, yeah, because apparently it was in the house in Toppenish is where they, they were saying that you guys were staying when this all happened. No, see, we... My father uh, got married in 1985 after my mother died of cancer and married to a Betty Clayson who owned, there was Clayson uh, Orchards over by Wiley City in that area in western uh, Yakima. And so he uh, moved into that house where, where Betty was in and then of course he had that double wide mobile home over in the Moxie area. Okay. And he decided to move the double wide out to within 150 feet of his uh, his home there out there in Wiley City, and he wanted us to move in there, which we didn't. I didn't want to live next to my dad. 
but uh, the uh, so what, I had a friend of mine in, in, when I was working for Muffet and Sons there in Buena. I used their backhoe, and I went out there, and I I did the septic tank and drain field systems for my father's mobile home. But my friend Ralph Clancy or Clancy was uh, trying to sell me this home there on Germantown Road in Toppenish, which we went to. But my oh. father always wanted my father always wanted us over in this other house, and my wife didn't like the house on Germantown Road. She didn't she didn't like it was old, and so she wanted to move over there to uh, top out of to. Um, uh, my father's home, and my dad kept pushing it. And so in the May of of uh, 88, uh, we moved over there. And like I told Scott there, it's, I came home. I, I, there was, we only had one car in the family. And uh, I was trucking, and I came home, and I got in the, I got in the, uh, to the company where I worked in Yakima, got on my bicycle, which that's how I got around, and I rode down to Toppenish to the house about, you know, 15, 18 miles, you know, it's kind of southeast. I walk in the house, and, and there's a note on the on the uh, refrigerator saying we moved. Oh. Which meant, that, which meant that now I had to ride 25 miles plus back the other direction on my bicycle. You'd think that my wife would have uh, contacted the trucking company and told them that we moved from that house. But anyway, she didn't. But, <laughs> but that was in, in May of, of 1988, and we're there, and she was there until she left in early August of, of 88. And in all that time, she, we were supposed to be, be paying rent to my father, and she was picking the money and putting it into a separate account. Wow. Saving it. I think we talked about uh, that on the last show, didn't we? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Okay, I thought we had touched on that, but uh, yeah. I'm still drinking coffee. So. <laughs> are, are, are you past the stabby patient? About, <laughs> what gets me no. about this is that when she said that she went to the canal and all that kind of thing, her father-in-law, my father, was only 150 feet away, and she never mentioned it too much to him or Betty, and the kids never said anything to them. They just left. Yeah, because apparently it was down in like a drainage ditch or something, or an irrigation irrigation canal, something to that effect. Well, it honestly, it doesn't surprise me that there that that she made up that story because um, we actually found where the we cat did. story came from. We, I did, and I the did contradictions. Some dig- That's yes. really interesting. So I'm gonna let Tammy take that away yes. and let you know actually where the cat torture stories. Come from. from. I'm actually. I'm fascinated I know because Scott's like, "Are you sure?" And I'm like, "Yes, sir, Bob." Take it away, Tim. So, um, through my research, because I tried finding that Oprah episode you were talking about, but I couldn't find that specific episode. But I did find the blog that goes along with it, where because Doctor Phil had not been on this Oprah stage for seven years prior to coming back for this episode, and he, yeah, he had met your daughter. At some one of his like retreats or whatever in 2008, that is the first time this cat story came out. And when she told that story, then it was how you took her litter of kitties and tied their tails together and watched them fight to the death and made her watch. Okay, so I was like, okay, that is like totally different than the story she's telling now. 
Well, come to find out, that is the exact story that the BTK killer had with his childhood and everything about doing the cats. BTK being uh, Dennis Rader. Yeah, Dennis Rader. Now, people said, but BTK wasn't caught until well after Keith. That's right. BTK was arrested in 2005. And that's when that story came out. And she started telling her cat story in 2008. Now, that since there was some controversy about that, her story has since changed. And in the last three years, she has changed it to how you grab the cat from her and in front of all of your children, choke the cat to death and blah, blah, blah. However, I found that that is actually the Edmund Kemper cat story. So, yeah, I, I, I was told that as well. I had someone, yeah. uh, I called on the phone. He said, well, I, I, I researched that. She said I, it was Edward Kemper was a story about the strangling of the cat yeah. or popping yeah. the head off or something like that. Yeah, he did. He, he took his sister's cat when they were younger. So she just, inter, you know, transposed you and, you know, her father, daughter, as opposed to brother, sister. But, yeah, it is like almost verbatim the same story. So yeah. I just I just wanted to let people know that, you know, I am cooperating what you're saying. And that's as far as I got this week, because I've had a weird week. But. Right, right. Because we get a lot of we I get a lot of comments and things like that. And emails kind of chewing me a little bit. You know, well, everything from like, how can you be friends with a serial killer uh, all the way to, you know, of course, he he's lying or serial killers never lie. And I tell them all oh, we cooperate everything yes. that he says to us, everything. You know, and Keith and I have an agreement that we don't bullshit each other. That's yeah, just that, that that's just the rules. And so far, everything he's said, it checks has, out. Has checked out. Yeah. What doesn't check out though is what Melissa, your daughter, says because we're we're, we're coming up with more and more of these false stories that that she's presented to the media um, to kind of uh, you know set herself on top of it. And I, I understand, man. Everybody wants to make a buck. I I, I dig that. I, I understand that. But to sit there and all in out lie when you could just tell the real story and still you yeah. know do accomplish well, the same thing about bullshit most of the inmates in here realize she's lying but they also tell me that you know you should just let her tell her stories because she needs to make a living off of because i didn't leave her in a good good way in other words i left my family abandoned when i went to prison and so they, they, they have this opinion that my kids should make money off of my crimes somehow to make a living because I didn't leave them in a good position. But uh, I've always said to my daughter when I did talk to her in 2005, if you're going to tell a story, tell the truth because lies will eventually come back and bite you. Right, and oftentimes you know, the truth, truth is stranger than fiction. I mean... <laughs> well, I've, Jack Olson told me that you know, after I told him all the story, he says, I had to juicy it up a little bit because it, your story's not juicy enough. And I said, well, isn't the truth supposed to be juicy enough? I mean, murder yeah. is murder for crying out loud. You, you think that's enough. But that, apparently some of these people think it's got to be uh, it's got to be a horror story is what it's got to well, be. Well, Scott and I were actually talking about that, you know, because when the truth comes out about your case, we're noticing... They tried to manipulate it to make you fit into their mold. And you don't fit that mold. Right, because with the murders, they also oftentimes interject uh, a rape factor in there. Exactly. There. That and he raped all of his victims. And, and there, was, yeah. there was no raping going on. Yeah. You know? So, <laughs> there's, there's always that. 
they always want you to make you out to be worse than you are or, or put you in the same category as other killers. Now, if you notice in the, in the news, when they talk about serial killers, they talk about Bundy or Gacy or right. you know, Dahmer. They never bring my name up because I, I got those two people out of prison, for one. Yeah. And I don't fit their narrative. Yeah, you don't. And fit... I know that if they if if I put me in that category, they'll have people researching my story, and, and at some point, I think they don't want to research my story. They don't want to tell the story the way it should be told. Right, and I think that's what we're. That's a lot of what we're learning is you don't fit the mold. I mean, you don't have the the McDonald triad. You don't have you know all this other stuff, and it's not like you fantasized about murdering before you murdered. It's like you just murdered in a fit of rage, and then you know what I mean. I got a side thing. I got yeah. a side thing going on here, and this is this is for Keith. Um, somebody that you correspond with actually got a hold of me through our Facebook page, and her name is Living Doll, and yeah. she wanted me to say that uh, your letter and care package I, or something like that is on the way. Really nice. Her and I had a good conversation back and forth via chat. If I don't tell him now, I'm going to forget. You're going to forget. <laughs> because my memory is not even yeah. a, 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 a thousandth of a percent say, the case. <laughs> you can't even say the word. <laughs> but I'll always remember your name over there, Fred. I know you will. It's, it's John. Get you know, it right. You know, I, told, I told because her name is Doll, D-O-L-L. Right. I told her I've never talked to a living doll before, so now she uses the living doll as her media outlet. Oh, that's so <laughs> funny. Yeah, she, she was really cool, yeah, man. She was like, she never thought about it. I was like, well, I've never talked to a living doll before. <laughs> she was like, okay then, all right. Well, I didn't literally talk to her, but I, I, I've written to her. Dude, that is the and slickest has, pickup line she ever. Several, she has several pieces of my artwork that she wanted done. Scott, I don't think he was trying to pick up on her. No, I'm just saying, man. <laughs> like, like, you seriously. always go there. <laughs> That's because I'm kind of a whore. Um, <laughs> you kind of are. But no, she's, very, she's a very nice lady. Yeah. I'll just put that perspective there. She's a very nice lady. And she's friends with a, uh, Briar Lee Mitchell, who's making that book called Serial Killers Then and Now, which oh. should be in print anytime now or pretty soon anyway. Oh, okay. We'll have to check that out. Cool, cool. Yeah, I noticed that she was really nice. So, like I said, her and I uh, chit-chatted back and forth via text um, on on the Facebook page via, via chat, and uh, she listens. She started listening to us on her walks because you're the one who said, "Hey, man, I'm on Brutal Nation." Whatever. So, thank you for that. But yeah, it was a it was a good conversation. That's actually she was concerned because of the time difference, and I got her message at like I don't know two or three in the morning, uh, but I was awake because I, mean, <laughs> I don't sleep. So. <laughs> We, we don't know what sleep is. So this is, there was one thing I wanted to, because when I started, like when I was like corroborating the story about the cats and I found out what happened, um, Melissa had said that she tried to come visit you because she wanted to have a relationship with you, but it just, your, her kids were scared of you or something like that. And I was like, that makes no sense. But, um, well, it- she came and saw me in 2005. Okay. Before she actually saw Dr. Phil. Right, before she went on her... And and her two children, Aspen and uh, Jake, okay. were, were... They came in out. The, the little boy was, was the, the younger, and I went into the playroom here and played with the kid. It was really strange for me because the last time I seen my daughter, she was still a daughter, 
at 15 right. years of age, and she didn't have a family. Now all of a sudden she's married, to, and then has two children. Right. And it's it's really a, a, a culture shock. Right. To have your children all of a sudden having children years later. See, there's 10 years after after I was arrested and sent to prison. So this is before she went on that retreat with Dr. Phil. Right, and the whole press junket that she had afterwards. <laughs> and then she started getting all this, you know. I believe that Dr. Phil kind of pushed the narrative. Oh, I do too. After I read it, I was like, oh, that? No, no. <laughs> you and know? of course, she, he pushed the narrative on, on what she should be doing and probably asked the questions about the triad stuff. Right. And then, then of course, on the last show of Doctor of, of Oprah, it was supposed to be the very last show Oprah had done. She brings in Doctor Phil on their show with Melissa and Don Slagle and and my ex-wife or her mother Rose. And that's when I hear the story, and that's when I hear Rose say, "What kitten? What are you talking about?" Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Because this is yeah the show that uh, Oprah had was in two thousand and nine. Okay. So it wasn't, uh, it was, and, and because of that show, Riverside County, California wanted, they, they got involved and they wanted to bring me down there for a trial, not real, and then the, the former prosecutor and I made a deal in 1996, and they tried to throw that out so they could take me to trial because of the Oprah show. Oh, wow. They wanted, because Melissa was pushing this, this narrative on there about the kittens and all that kind of stuff. They thought they could use that in a trial. Only when I was in there and when I went to went down to my arraignment in January of 2010, uh, I had the paperwork that my lawyer sent me in my front pocket and went in there and I, I met my lawyer for the first time, very nice lady, Portuguese. And she said, uh, we're gonna you know, go through arraignment. I said, well, aren't we gonna take care of the case now? And he, she said, what do you mean? What deal? What are you talking about? And oh. I, she reached and grabbed my pocket, and there's the, the letter of intent for a life sentence, which I am doing down there for, you know, I'm, I'm doing a 25 to life out of California, running concurrent with Oregon at that time, at this time right now. Okay. And that was, and they were so mad that they couldn't take me to trial because I had this deal in writing. That's well, they... been the biggest issue is that I have never had a trial, but I have six murder convictions. Yeah, I mean, I've had people say that, too. It's like, when did he go on trial? I'm like, he didn't, people. Not once. <laughs> yeah. Not once. I've yeah. never had a trial. The longest I've ever spent in front of a judge is probably half an hour. I just walked in and said, I, told, I gave him this uh, ultimatum, let's say. I said, you uh, you sign off to a, to a life sentence in writing. I'll, 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 I'll jump through the hoops for you, and we'll get this all taken care of as, as cheap as possible. But if you come after me with a possible death sentence, then okay, we'll we'll fight it all the way because that's what the death sentence does. It makes you fight it all the way, right? And which will will spend millions of dollars to accomplish nothing, right? No, and yeah. of course, what do they do? Is they they don't want to go to trial anyway because those two people I got out of prison would be advocates in my corner to say that nice man over there, the serial killer got us out of prison and that prosecutor the asshole over there put us there right <laughs> yeah they don't want they don't want to get yeah. in court and have that brought up again and again and again that's why yeah. when i got them out of prison all the other jurisdictions fell in line and just gave me life sentence in writing 
Well, see, and that's just one of the things, too, that, I mean, we talked about on our show is that um, when the prosecutor or the office, you know, law enforcement start bringing in multiple people on a case and try to throw the book at them, it, like, diminishes the case against the actual perpetrator, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's a whole big thing, but... um, yeah, because it was like, you know, you already have these two people here. And technically, I mean, and I didn't know this until you and I started corresponding. I was under the impression that they overturned Laverne's and uh, what's his name sentence. No, but yeah, they, you said they no, they just. They allowed her to go free. Yeah. Under Oregon's rule of cruel and unusual punishment, a factually person, even a factually found guilty person that was factually innocent could be set free. Now, had they. It was all about damage control. Mm-hmm. It was all about when I proved I was the one responsible. They were trying to figure out a way to let them out of prison that wouldn't bring down the whole establishment. Right. So the judge stepped in and said, okay, how do we do this? Well, under Oregon's cruel and unusual punishment rule, we can set them free. But she was still factually found guilty of murder right up until her death in 2003. Right, she was let go. We don't know what kind of a deal they made off the side for financial gain or whatever to make this go away. Right. And the, and as far as John Sosnowski was concerned, they, they they brought in the idea that Laverne had wore a wire to entrap him, and which I don't think really happened. I don't think she actually wore a wire, but they said she did. Okay. Therefore, his civil rights were violated, and they could set him free. They could set aside his his uh, plea is, is no conscious plea. Right, because he never played guilty. It was he a did, way to let yeah. them go without having... Well, the, the ideal way would have been for Laverne to file under new evidence right. and take it to trial. And these prosecutors and the police didn't want the trial because then Laverne would have been able to stand there and on the witness stand and say, this is how I got the evidence that nobody else knew. This detective gave it to me. This one here gave it to me right. and had me feed it back to them. And they, this is what they said. And this is how the whole case developed. They didn't want that out in the open. They right. wanted to hide it. Oh, of course. So they just they just said, open the door and said, you can go free today if you just sign on the dotted line, in which she did. And that's pretty much what happened. Right. Yeah, because I remember yeah. when she got out, it was like this big thing. But um... now, now, one of the things that might be you might want to bring up, Simone, when I first got arrested, and this whole thing came up with, with a body count of eight, my lawyer, ideally, the lawyer would have taken the case, the last case first. I would have went the Winningham case. I would have had to deal with that one first, and then the Angel Sabrese one next, and then, you know, un- and go backwards, and I would, the last one I would have settled would be the Laverne and John case. Right. But I, I persuaded my attorneys to know the, the best thing we could do is get those people out of prison right away. If we got them out of prison right away, then, of course, the rest of these cases will go away. Right. Because they will not want to pursue this in court with these two people I've gotten out of prison as my advocates. See and see, and, and, I think of, co- and the, of course, my attorney went with it. See, and I think that's another thing that people can't wrap their mind around either is the fact that there were already two people in jail for something that you did, and yet you still were like, "No, we need to get these people out," you know, which is practically unheard of with you know anything really. 
Well, the, the prosecutors, when they put him in prison, they believe that it's, it, it's, a, it's a, a gamble, let's say. Right. They gambled that the real killer would never come forward to, to prove his guilt with two people in prison. Right. That was their betting on. They were betting that no one would ever come forward and prove this. And, of course, they used all the evidence up that they had right. in their case, in Laverne's case, so that anyone that would come forward would not have any new evidence in order to get them out of prison, which they were wrong. <laughs> right, because wasn't it the whole wallet or purse or whatever? Well, the purse thing, I knew exactly where the purse, and I didn't put it around where I put the body. I'd actually, several miles away along the Sandy River Road is where I put it. Right. And I couldn't tell them originally, I couldn't tell them exactly where it was because I didn't want them to, to destroy the evidence. Okay. I actually had to, con I contacted a reporter and had the reporter sit on the real location where it was. And then I told the detectives a week later that I lied to them that that one place wasn't really where it was and this is where it really is. And I had this reporter, Phil Stanford, watching over it at the time. And, of course, they went out there and they, even if Phil wasn't watching, the the thought in their, their minds was that he was. And so they discovered the purse and ID card within several minutes several minutes and then they had to acknowledge that I knew evidence only the real killer could know. Right. Yeah. Now, Scott, you wanted to bring up something about the law enforcement thing, remember? About manipulating yeah, the law? Yeah, there you go. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, you know, because uh, and that that's another one of the emails that, that I've gotten in is, well, he just manipulated the law. Well, here's the thing, boys and girls. Lawyers manipulate the law that's their judge or that that, that that's their job yeah um police the legal system yeah the legal the system does the it. legal system most people don't realize how the legal system works well so exactly what you call is layman's law remember this is the law that you believe as a child right, right. and as you're growing up there's right or wrong that's it i mean there's no there's no multiple grades of of murder, there's no multiple grades of anything. Uh, it's confusing when someone gets arrested and all of a sudden they're charged with five counts of murder and they only killed one person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they have this issue, go like, okay, it's like, how about the smoking gun theory where the guy is arrested after he's holding the gun over the person, they got him dead to nuts, and what happens at arraignment? He has to plead not guilty because right. that's the way the law reads. I mean, I tried to go in and say I'm guilty, but the judge is going to say, no, I can't allow you to do that, Mr. Desperate, and I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to enter a plea for you because that's the way the law reads, is I have to read a, a not guilty verdict. Right. And so that automatically the press and, and the public go, like, wait a minute, man, he got caught dead and nuts to this. Why isn't he pleading guilty to this? And it's because of the law. The law doesn't allow us to do that. Right, you know, and we might as we might as not even have an arraignment because the judge will enter a not guilty plea for everyone. Yeah, you can't plead guilty until you've settled your case with the prosecutor. See, the prosecutor has full power over this until they hand it over to the judge. The right. judge has no say in the matter until the prosecutor and the defense get together and they come up with a solution. Right, you know, Whether and I think trial or deal. I think a lot of people get confused with 
law manipulation versus illegal. Everybody who's involved in a court case, and I've been involved in court cases myself where I've been the defendant, and so's Tammy. All three negative. Of us have, uh, that's my favorite from one of the guards from when Tammy was in prison. He was negative female inmate. But, yeah. um, you know, uh, it, it's the job of your attorneys to see a job. It's the job of everybody. You, it, It's not illegal. You're simply using the laws in as your, they yeah. stand in your state and in your case. To get the best outcome, um, not just as the defendant, but for the complainant as well. It's, right. That's that's the, everybody's job is to come up with the well, best the, solution the to the issue problem. Here, the real issue is not about what the lawyer is going to do for you. It's, it's the fact that when you are arrested, you're the person coming in. You're as, as a client. You're a client, and you're given this opportunity. Of, of, of talking to someone that knows the law. Now he's going. He's he's going to take control of your case, even though I, I'm a big bad murderer and I would get arrested. But all of a sudden, I'm not big and bad anymore. I'm just at the hands of the mercy of, of the court. Right. And so I have to follow what is proper courtroom procedure, which means we have all these rights, and we're going to be explained all these rights before oh, we yeah. go to trial. And so. The, the, the public out there isn't aware of all these rights, even though they should be. Right. And well, it's you that know? and it's the if, manipulation if of the media the law, as well. If everybody read up on the law, then, of course, they'd all know what all of our rights are. But these are the rights that they that they voted in. You know, you have a right to remain silent. Right. Although and... I didn't have the ability. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, I've been there right? more times than I can count. <laughs> Run right, get put the best. Silent, but I didn't have the ability. But if I'd stayed silent and never said anything to anybody, this whole story that's being told out there would be moot because there wouldn't be a story. Right. But we have the the case coming. That's why the police ask you. uh, You you want to talk to them, and of course, you know what they say. They say, if you tell us the truth, we'll go easy on you. Oh yeah. Been there. Okay, you, you remember you remember mom and dad telling you, "Hey, Tammy, uh, you know, I know you broke the lantern. Yeah. But if you tell us the truth, we weren't going to spank you, right? Well, so you tell them the truth, and everything goes easy on you. I was going to say, well, then you they, still they, get they, the ass whooping. This is layman's law. This is what right. we all believe as kids growing up. Right. We believe this. If we tell the police the truth, they'll go easy on you. But you have to understand when when you get arrested. Uh, I sat there in county jail going like, wait a minute, I told them the truth and they still want to go after me for this. Oh, wait a minute, who did I tell? Well, I told the police. Well, then I told my lawyer. Guys, we got 45 seconds. That didn't do me any good. What ended up happening is I have to realize who they are. Remaining. They are is, uh, if you tell the truth, they will go each on, and they are my future jurors, and that's why I went public with the press. Right. right, and we're going to get into that on your next call. In, I will we bring, got... I'll, I'll call you right back. All right, buddy. Okay. Talk to you in a minute. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, bye. All right, welcome back, Keith. So we were talking about manipulation of the media, um, which, once again, media outlets do that. They they manipulate what they say. And that's that, that's evident even in politics, if you think about it. Like, um, especially when, when Trump was in office, you have uh, the, the media outlets that were Trump supporters. That would sit there and go, hey, Trump is always right. And then you have the ones who weren't going, everything Trump is saying is wrong. But they do that with not just that, but they do it with serial killers and they do it with uh, with everything. And it's in order to basically yeah. sell more airtime. The, the, 
so this is let me, let me go into my case here a little bit back in 1995. So in, on March 24th, so about 9 o'clock at night, uh, in March 24th of 1995, I called up Detective Rick Buckner of Clark County Jail uh, Sheriff's Office, and I, I confessed to him the Julie Winningham murder over the phone, and I told him to come and get me. In other words, I turned myself in for the murder of Julie Winningham. Now, most people don't realize that that's what I did. I actually waited for the sheriff to show up, and they got there, and they... They, and I walked right up to him, said, I'm who you're looking for. And they cuffed me and they put me in the car. They ran me to Wilcox, Arizona. The next following morning, I'm in Bisbee, Arizona. And the very first thing I happened, I run into an attorney. And the attorney says to me, you shouldn't have turned yourself in. You shouldn't have talked to the police. That's the worst thing you can do because that's what attorney tells you. He doesn't, you, can't, you don't tell the cops anything. You don't, that is you correct. You quiet. Yeah. And you, that, that's what I should have done, but I didn't. I turned myself in. Now the, the ball's rolling, right? Okay, so I get a, uh, they come down and they pick me up and they fly me back to Portland and they drive me over to Clark County. Now, I had sent a letter which is a, uh, uh, to my brother, which was actually a suicide note. I was actually contemplating suicide. And I wrote a letter to my brother and I said, I killed eight people in five years. You know, and I, I was trying to explain to the family why I'm killing myself. Now that letter came out. You know, they, you know, they didn't they didn't destroy it. They uh, they turned it over to the police, and Detective Buckner uh, took that letter and was you, you know comparing it to what could possibly be you know a, a serial killer out there, and up comes the the original happy face letter that was sent to the Oregonian in 1994, they compared to it. Now, in June of 95, Buckner goes to the press, the uh, Bruce Westfall of the Columbia newspaper, and he says, hey, I got the possible serial killer in my jail. And so there's a big, you can go to the press, you can see it in June of 95, there was a big hoopla about me being the possible happy face killer sitting in Clark County Jail, and there's a and who was mad was Multnomah County uh, prosecutors were mad that they did that Buckner didn't inform them first because of the Bennett case. They thought that they should have been informed, but they weren't. And this big hoopla was going on. Now my lawyer told me to keep quiet, which I did. But it came a point where I I had to think to myself, what's the worst case scenario that's going to happen? I'm going to be now I'm going to be a serial killer. I'm not just going to be down for Julie Winningham's murder. Now I'm going to be tied to the Happy Face murders. Right. And so I had to think about this. Now in September of '95, it was actually on the 16th. I had sent a whole bunch of confessions. Now Clark County or any county, they they monitor your your mail coming and going. So I couldn't send press. I couldn't send letters to the press because they would catch it and they wouldn't let it out. So I actually had to smuggle them out through somebody else's mail, through a legal, through a lawyer to hand it and put it in a mailbox outside of the jail to get to where it needs to go, which I sent out seven confessions to several of the news agencies around the area. And it went to St. John's over there and the person that got it turned around and sent it back in the mail so that on the 18th, which was a Monday, of, uh, of September, they went ahead and 
and that's when they got it. But they didn't publish it until the 19th of September. That's when the big press hoopla came out in all the papers. Now, I was in a jail cell, and a couple, of the detect- a couple of the cops came up, and they wanted to shake my hand because I was taking responsibility for my actions. I was saying I who, who I was and that I was guilty. And that was the people I was dealing with, the press, which I actually got, you know, lawyers were actually contacting me saying, that, you know, wanted to congratulate me for coming forward and cleaning up this whole thing, right? But on, not, on the 20th, on the 20th of which the judge calls me in his in, into the court and they place a gag order on me. Now the gag order is to keep me from talking to the press. Why? Because like the like Judge Harris says, says I want I want to uh, maintain a proper courtroom procedure so that it's not not screwed up by the press. They wanted to keep me out of the press so I so that but the they didn't have no problem with the police telling it, going to the press, but they have a problem with the killer going to the press. Huh. Now, I went ahead and broke the gag order later on uh, when I needed... I waited for a whole bunch of things to happen, and then when, when I felt a need to where I had to go out there and, and break the gag order, I did. And what did they do? They put me in isolation to keep me from the press. Right. So here you have the, the, the press is good for the courts, but it's not good for me. That's what they're trying to keep me away from. Now, normally the the client or the suspect is claiming that they're innocent right. in the press. I'm not claiming I'm innocent. Right. I'm telling them I'm guilty, which they're really mad because I, I'm breaking the mold, right? Right. Not, it, you're not fitting I'm into their mold. I'm <laughs> telling them I'm guilty and you're going to just deal with this. I'm going to... You know, take care of all these cases and stuff like this. Just let's just, just just deal with it. And of course, they're all mad because you know. And then eventually, as it turns out, I am guilty. But the press, I needed to use the press to tell my future jurors that I'm guilty. And because of this, all these deals kind of fell into place. Why? Because they did not want to. Well, imagine a prosecutor in any one of the cases would say. Uh, they're going to, in their opening statement, if they're going after me with a possible death sentence, they would, they would go in there with the opening statement to the to the court and say to the future, all the jurors sitting there, says, I'm going to prove to you that everything Mr. Jesperson told to you six months ago in the press is true. Right. I have nothing else to, I don't have nothing else to prove, but I, because he told you the truth, he did the right thing and told you the truth, even though he did that, I want you to kill him anyway. See, and I think that's what people don't understand is you didn't manipulate the system to get away with anything. You manipulated no. the system to, you know, to avoid certain things, which I'm sorry, everybody should have done. You know, I, I manipulate the system to make the make the cases settle as quick as possible. Right. In, in OK, so I went public on the September 19th of, of 95 and said I was guilty of the crimes. Right. Mm-hmm. By by December nineteenth, three months within ninety days, I had settled three cases to murder. You know, I had settled the Winningham case, the the Bennett case, and the Pentland case in ninety days, and gotten two people out of prison in ninety days. Wow! Right, and yeah. so, and that's without a trial. 
I walked in, said I did it. This is what happened. Let's get this over with. Let's move on. And that's what we did. You Ninety know, it, days. I had three cases settled. I had a hundred and hundred and one years to do in prison. Let's move on. Let's get this thing over with. Let's just carry on. The next 90 days, I had three more life sentences in writing. Wow. So in 180, 180 to half a year, I'd settled six cases and three of them through the court and, and three of them in writing. Yeah. So, After that. So, yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I guess this is what irritates me is because I hate the press anyways. Because, I mean... Because you, I mean, I think you're familiar with my case because I know that you are friends with one of my co-defendants or you know him. Um, but there was a time in the press where I was a skinhead. You know, we were all skinheads. It's like, what? <laughs> where did this come from? You know what I mean? Is that any relation to a conehead? <laughs> well, you would think, I, you know what? I don't know, but probably. <laughs> probably. But yeah. And you're see, all alien. You're all alien to this nation. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and so it's, right. it just, I mean, so I don't like the press anyways. Um, so that's why I always, like when Scott and I started this show, I was like, you know, we want to shine a light on things that nobody knows about and get the truth out there. You know, because uh, so many people just regurgitate Wikipedia or they take whatever the press said and that's fact. You know, so it's well, just. Well, if it's on the Internet, it must be true. You know what? I, I, I have to tell my mother all the time. I don't care if you saw it on Facebook, Mom. It's not true. <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, this is they, they keep re, like you said. They keep regurgitating the, the what other people are saying, and then of course you have rumors. Yeah. And of course, prison is full of rumors. Everyone has a rumor for something. Oh yeah. And so they all deal with it in, in a certain way, and and I like to say I get accused of all kinds of things. Now I'm sure you're probably getting a lot of hate mail from. Uh, people that don't understand. Here you are. You're you're talking about your your your, your title to the show is brutal nation, right? So you're trying to you're trying to portray everything as as a brutal idea no. in this country, and people are tuning in for this, and yet yeah. they're mad because you have me on you have me on other killers on your show. Yeah. See, and I think what they neglect to realize is what we meant by brutal nation is almost brutal truth. You know. <laughs> Not the fact that, you know, and um, it just, and yes, I mean, Scott probably more so because he, he like does a lot of different chat groups and stuff on Facebook with it. But we have heard from some people saying, you know, why, why are you doing this? Well, we want the truth out there. You know, we don't want they just, made, they've yeah. made their mind up already. Oh yeah, a lot of people have. I mean, a lot of people have made up the, made up their mind about me a long time ago. People have made up their mind about Scott to this day, <laughs> you know. Um, but yep. yeah, so it's like I mean, because I think I was talking to my sister about this because my sister just started listening to our show too. Um, but her and I were talking about this, and she goes, "Some of that stuff you're talking about, Tam, I had never heard of." I go, "I know, right?" <laughs> so, you know. It's a lot of people just, like I said, they just regurgitate what the press has already said. And, you know, we're not here to make our ratings better by, you know, telling lies. We're here to, you know, since not to sensationalize the well, story. To, we're trying to open up the open up the uh, yeah people's minds to what really goes on in the world. Exactly. Exactly. And that, you know, society tries to mold certain people certain ways, which is, you know, kind of what we were talking about, how you don't fit the mold. And, well, you, you know. know one of the things I got uh, got asked about, you know, in the last few days, my daughter's been on TV a lot. 
you know, the monster in my family series. Oh, yeah. So, so she goes to the, uh, you know, so I think uh, one of the shows they had this week was uh, Deal with Yates out of Spokane, where she goes and talks to the family of Yates. Oh, yeah. And says, uh, you're, you're, you know, your father was a killer and all this and that. Now, it, because she's my daughter, that gets her in the door. Right. And so the only presence she really has is the fact that she is the daughter of a killer, and that's all she cares. Now, remember the um, um, Amanda Berry? Yes. Cleveland, Ohio, and, and, and Castro that abducted her? Yes. When, Amanda, when, she got, when she escaped Castro, I said to myself, I said to myself, I said, you just wait. Melissa is going to contact them and say she can be a consultant for her or something. <laughs> It's going to be something because it's high profile. She's going to throw herself at the wolves there. And I said the only one I think could probably be any any good on that one would be Elizabeth Smart because she had been abducted. Oh, yes. Elizabeth uh, Smart but, is an advocate for that. Yeah, she would have been a great advocate for that series. And, and of course, Castro ended up killing himself anyway. But right. the uh, the whole thing came up. It was so high profile. And sure enough, within 48 hours, there was Melissa. <laughs> being, a, being on TV, uh, trying to jam into this thing about trying to get her profile going, and so every mm-hmm. high-profile thing that came along, she was injecting herself into, trying to push the narrative that my daddy's a killer and I should be on TV. Wow! See you know, that, and that's what is crazy. Yeah. You know. Well, you now, see, and I was talking to Scott. I go, you know what? I how do we get a law passed that the families of these, you know, because there's the son of Sam Law, you know, which means you well, can't that, profit off your overturned. case. Son of Sam Law has been overturned. Oh, has it been overturned now? Yes. Now, now the way Oregon gets around this, okay, this is how Oregon gets around it. You have to have permission to enter into a business in order to proceed in the Oregon prison system. So, in other words, I may be, I may do great art, let's say, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to draw and I want to, let's say I want to sell artwork. Well, I can't sell artwork. Why? Because I'm not in allowed in a business. I cannot barter. I cannot do anything because I was not given permission to do so. However, I can give my artwork to family and friends, and if they want to donate money to my account, they can do so. It is a fine line, right? Right. There's a fine line there where you're, but, but the way I was explained to is that, the prison wants plausible deniability to the idea that anyone's making money off of their crimes. Even though we have a hobby shop here with a bunch of people that are selling their products, but they're in contract with the Department of Corrections. Right. I was going to say. They have permission to do so. Yeah. I was going to say, I thought OSP had that, you know, like gift shop type thing. Yes. Yeah. But see, that's, that's their way around the son of Samoa. Got it. Because you have to have permission to enter a business. Now, like I say, it's been overturned, and people can't, you know, other you know, people like John Wayne Gacy could have sold his pictures. But uh, they have different, states have their different rules on how they want to proceed with this. Okay. And that's how Oregon, how Oregon gets around this is that they say, well, you have to have a business. You have to have permission from the Department of Corrections to enter into a business or to barter for anything. Okay. I got in trouble a lot of times on this. Originally, it was back in 2002, there was a, an art show upstairs, and they, they came in with the press, which 
and they took pictures and said, oh my God, he's selling his artwork. My God, he's getting 25 whole dollars for his artwork. And they made a big deal about it. The next thing you know, I'm sitting in the hole. Why? I didn't, I didn't have permission to do that. Wow. So they, they threw him in the hole for artwork that hadn't been sold yet. <laughs> and Well, this is it. I mean, they, they basically, yeah. they, every time they look at things, they look at the worst case scenario anyway. Oh, yeah. So you just can't, you have to, you have to, now basically what's come down to is I just, you just have to learn over time how to um, follow along the lines in prison. Right. Oh, no, I get it. You just do what, you have to follow what what the rules are and then not rock the boat. Right. There, There are times where I was being asked, why don't you file a lawsuit against the hobby shop for discrimination because they won't let me out there in the hobby shop? And I said, well, I think you have to look at the big picture here. If I were to file a lawsuit against a hobby shop, I'd have to list everybody that's in the hobby shop now right. as, as they're getting and I'm not. Right. Now, I would win the case. Don't get me wrong. I would win the discrimination case. But the thing is, what would I win? The decision would come down that, yes, I could be in the hobby shop, but if there's no hobby shop, oh, well. Yeah. Right? So they'll take the hobby shop away from everybody else. So everybody else will suffer. Now, that's exactly what happened with smoking. Someone sued for secondhand smoke in the, in, the, in, in prison. I, I, I don't have to deal with smoke. And so what did they do? They took smoking away from all the inmates. Right. Yeah, I yeah. remember so when they took it away from us, too. <laughs> that's how they win. I win. Okay, I'd win for for discrimination, but they take the hobby shop away from everybody else, and that's always the big picture you got to look at. There's right. no point in me suing to get something that eventually I'm still not going to get. Right. We'll see. And, yeah. I mean, and that's that was the big thing, because, I mean, we covered this, too. Remember, Scott, with Jerry Brudos? Oh, And yeah, how yeah. he sold some of his stuff out of that hobby shop. Uh-huh. So, I mean, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I, I don't like the, you know, it's, it's well, all met, these. I met Jerome Brutus. I met him when I was first here, but he died of liver problems. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because. Yeah, um, I met him originally when I was here, and he sat at my table, and I looked at him. I didn't even say much to him. Uh, us killers don't talk too much. You know, Randy Woodfield, I, I, I must have, been, I have maybe talked to him maybe a whole 20 minutes in all the time I've been here. Oh, really? Wait, but hold on. Are you, are you telling me it's, there, there's not like a serial killer union? There's not like a support group? <laughs> Bad joke, well, but I had to make it. You know, it's like Sebastian Shaw. We have Sebastian Shaw in here who died of a of a broken neck within the last couple of years. Right. Right. We and covered him, too. He's a child killer or something like right. that. Right. We covered him, but too. I wouldn't, uh, you know, he would never sit at my table at breakfast or anything like that because we don't want to. I, I just don't want to deal with them. I mean, there's an arrogance to some of these people, right? And I just don't, I choose not to I choose not to uh, uh, share notes with them. Although I've, I've had in the past, I have written other killers in other prisons, right? And just to find, just to have a kind of a uh, a report on who's to trust and who's not to trust in the in the pen pal type situation. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. It's always nice to know who's who's on our side and who isn't. Right, and right. Of course, I've I wrote to Tom Lincells. I wrote to Angel Maturino Resendez and uh, who uh, Arthur Shaw Cross when he was there. No, Resendez was the railroad killer in Texas. Oh, okay, okay. Now I got it. Okay, I know I wrote who you're him about now. until his death. I, 
within yeah. about a few weeks of his death, I, I was still getting letters from him. Wow. So, yeah, he, uh, him and I shared some notes on several people, which was interesting. And we can't forget about Patrick Kearney, man. Uh, yeah, dude, that's he, Scott's favorite. I, <laughs> I actually really enjoyed the letters back and forth with Patrick because, they, you know. He's his, a very his, intelligent person. And, well, and his life was, uh, just what he did in life and everything like that was really interesting. You know, not saying well, that wrote, you're not. I wrote, I, Patrick, I, I wrote Patrick for years. Yeah. Until the, the prison system took it upon themselves to eliminate uh, inmates from writing other inmates. Oh. Oh, wow. So, so then, I can't write. I cannot write to, especially in the feds. The feds, you can't write other inmates, even wow. from county to prison. So you, unless they're family, and you got to be on a list. Oh, so oh, I didn't as, know that. As far as correspondence goes, uh, if I wrote Patrick, but he, you know, Patrick could send me a letter. I could get a letter from him, but I can't send him a letter back. Gotcha. Won't get to him. Right, that's what you were telling me when I came up to visit you, is that uh, you'd written him, but you can't get letters back from him. Yeah, I have to go through a third party. Yeah. I, you know, I have to go so, through a third party on this. Yeah. So, a little off-subject, you know, because talk about the union here. <laughs> did you ever yeah. have a chance to, like, sit down, or did you, like, have conversations with Cesar Barone before he passed away, too? With who? With Cesar Barone. Who's he? He was, oh, guess not. The okay. midwife killer. Hey, Caesar was not part of the serial killer union. He was union. not part of the fan club. No. <laughs> People are going to hate club? us. No, but. Um, I'm going to get hate mail. I'm going to get so much hate mail. He's the one there that. Are, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of people in here that have sat down with me that I have no idea who they are. Oh, okay. They all have, little, they all have questions, and they, and, I, and they say, can I ask you a question? I said, you can ask me anything you want, but I may choose not to answer you. Right, right. No, yeah. he was the one who murdered the midwife in Washington County um, several years ago. And so I was just like, oh, you know. But he, um, I think he had a body count. Wasn't it five? Yeah, it was five. Yeah. And then he oh. had also tried to kill his grandma in, in Florida, too. So, Huh. Well, you know, you understand in Oregon there must be like 500 murderers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Pacific I mean, Northwest is, kind of breeds them. Common practice. Yeah. We yeah. Have... <laughs> Shut up, Scott. It's true, though. So I, and I, it's because of the shitty weather. Of, I'm a member of the, of the Lifers Club in here. In yeah. order to be a member of the Lifers Club, you have to have taken a body. In other words, you have to have killed someone to be in the Lifers Club here. Oh, now, wow. Other, in, in other Lifers Clubs and other prisons, all you have to have is a life sentence. Okay. But in here in Oregon, you have under their bylaws, you actually have to have taken the life of someone in oh. order to be in the club. So there's a club here about murder. There's a murder. I call it a murderer's club. It's not a <laughs> lifer's club. It's a murderer's club. Right. That's what. That's what it sounds yeah. like. So wait a minute. I have a whole it new is. plan. That's what it is. Guys, I have a. I, I have a brand new plan. That, that I tell other people that are in the lifers that this is a murderer's club. They said, "What do you mean?" I said, "You have to have murdered someone to get in the club." Yeah. So, guys, yeah, hear me out. Hear me out. Club in prison. This is Scott. a powerful club. It really is. But it, they, they all—you got to remember who you're dealing with in here. Right. That's true too. Yeah. So here's my idea. Since you had, and I, I'm going to get so much hate mail over this. Since you had the the serial killer handbook. <laughs> hear me out, so guys. This is, a, ha- yeah, this is a great killer, idea. Uh, kill, sure I think. Yes, I think that all the other killers should call into the show too. And we'll have like a big union meeting. 
hate That's, you, Scott oh, Alexander. Yeah, I, I just set us up for no, tons of hate mail no, because I, I can't help myself. No. See, and I was going to ask, too, because um, you were talking about how you, I mean, because people were saying, oh, he manipulated the press and the system and everything. But let let me ask you about this one, though. Israel Keys did the same thing. Do you remember his case out of Alaska? No, I do not. Oh. I don't. I don't follow these cases. Oh, you don't. I'm okay. In prison. I don't. I don't even watch. Uh, you know, I don't. Yeah. They're they're talking about the guy getting released from prison here in the next few days. Whatever name is a serial rapist or some stupid thing like that. But he's done his time, right? Uh huh. Apparently, the guy has done his time, and he's going to get out. And, and the, the public or the, the the people that the victims' families are upset that he's done his time, and now he's going to get out. And how how dare him do the prison time he was set aside for? Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, <laughs> this is this is the the mentality of people. They don't want the guy back out in their their community, which is understandable. But after right. thirty or forty years in prison, I think people changed. You know, we have a different outlook. Right. We're not going to come out there and reoffend because we don't like prison, right? And his name is Richard Troy uh, Gilmore. Oh well, there you go. Gilmore, yeah. <laughs> yep, he's a jogger, the jogger rapist. Oh, that guy out of the. I, I have no idea. I've never talked to the guy. I don't care. Right, he's been uh, in there a while, yeah. man. Like he, he, this was from the seventies, man, and uh, he did. Because uh, yeah. I'm looking at it right now, uh, thirty six. It was thirty six years. Wow. So yeah, he's done his time. He's getting out, and people are up in arms because he's getting out. Yeah. I mean, and that's yeah, the well. thing is that a lot of people don't... I mean, this is where... I mean, this is where Scott and I agree on, is people don't realize that even though somebody committed a crime, they're still a human being. And people change over time, too, you that's know? That's true, too. No, uh, 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 well, okay. I will say this. People change over time, except child molesters. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw that out there and probably get hate mail for that, too. But... Everybody has an evolution, okay? Right. So, granted, Keith, you had a problem with the control factor, which led you to killing eight people, but you've evolved since then. Now, would you reoffend if you got back out? Maybe. Maybe not, because everybody, you know, Probably changes. Probably not. Different. I don't want to. I don't like prison. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't you, think you, you did. You I don't? Not, uh, if I was to get out, I would not, I would not reoffend. Of course, there's people that would argue with that. Right. Oh, totally. Because they will change a man's mind mentality because just because he did time, he got he's still the same person. I've I've heard all the all the records. You know, what can you tell the public that uh, they that they want to hear? Right. Well, plus, there, there's a ton of counseling want, involved okay, too. So if, if 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 like Castro in that Amanda Berry case, he killed himself. What did they say? They said he took the cowardly way out. Right. That's what they said. He took the oh, cowardly yeah. way out. So why? Because he killed himself. He should have killed himself before he, uh, you know, he got Amanda and the other girl in there, right? Right. That's what he should have done. Um, yeah, he should have. He should have done that. Now, you have right now. You have those uh, four college students there in, in Idaho. Yes. Moscow, Idaho, yeah, we're actually that recovering that in Moscow, Idaho. And they're, yeah, they're having a big thing on it now. My opinion of the thing is that they, the the killer was a local and that he's just sitting back and watching and he just he, he's listened to the CSI report on TV for years and he's he just decided he wanted to go off and he's just sitting back watching everybody run around with like their heads cut off right 
So, so have you That's been following that case? Oh, I see it on the news once in a while, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, they, they compared it with Bundy, because Bundy had killed the uh, The college student, yeah. Like that. Yeah. Well, how about the, uh, Danny Rowling? Uh, right, Gainesville right, right. Slasher. The Gainesville Whipper, yeah. Another college. Yeah. You know, Ted Bundy did the, you know, University of Washington as well. Then he crossed over into Florida. And right. Everything was like, oh, they all pointed to a circle. I don't think he's a, he's a, you know, he may have had what he done. He may have gone in and he what killed two or mean? three of them. And then the last one, he decided to let, he's a fight with her for a little bit and stab her a little bit, let her defend herself <laughs> or some stupid thing like that. But it's a, it was a, uh, it was a bot. But he's not going to get caught he's, until he tells on himself. See, we have a little bit different take on that, but we've got one minute remaining, so... I will call, call you back? back. Awesome. Thank you, I'll Keith. Bye-bye. All right, Keith, welcome back to the show. So we left off this last call talking about the, the murders of in Moscow. We have a little bit different take on that because we found out some interesting information because we got nothing better to do but to research. <laughs> I have other things to do, too. Oh, well, you, because, well, you, you're, you know, anyway, go ahead. No, um, so we actually, we, I mean, even though the cops are saying it's not, we think that it is tied in with that murder in Salem and the murder in Washougal. Okay. You know, I, beca- I actually saw that on the news as well. Right. And then the cops were saying, oh, no, it's, you know, they're unrelated and everything. And we can't get anybody they to contact us. But, but we have a. we have a take on it because we found out something that ties all three cities together. What is that? You want to tell him, Scott? Yeah, there, there, there's a company, and we're not going to mention the name or anything because we don't want to hamper a case, that is directly located in all three. Now, with that said, Salem, you can see it's it, it's got a lot of in- industry, so you can kind of see where this company would be there. But Washougal really doesn't, and yeah. neither does Moscow. Moscow is just a speck on the map. Barely. So for the same company to be in all three places is very peculiar and we, we came across that because when tammy and i were talking about it um the guy who brought it to my attention his name is joel balthazar um good friend of mine um I, when joel and i were talking i go you need to ask yourself why you know why did it happen and if it if it is one person why would they travel all the way up to moscow uh, of all places after being in salem and washougal right and there we yeah we definitely we found ties to all three and the fact that they were practically ritualistic to the, like, 14 months to the hour. Yep. So. So, so the, everyone is within 14 months to the hour? Yes. Yep. Of everyone. each other for the yes. murder, between the th- three murders? Between yes. the three, 14 months. I mean, and it all, ha- all of them were 14 months to the day and hour, like, between 3 and 4 a.m. All right. Well, then, then who, then the, the, the person involved in it. In this connection of travel, could be a local in one of the areas. Oh, yeah, no, that, yeah, no, that, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, because he probably works for that company that we found, yeah. and yeah, has a reason to travel. It's like it's like if you have a truck driver. Okay, I mean, I worked for several trucking companies over the years. Now, there's a lot of truckers that that, that live in an area, but are hired in in companies in other states. So that when they come through their home, they can stop in at their home and see their kids. But when they go back to the, the company, the company's, let's say, in, uh, in Spokane. Right, and right, right. The driver is, is based out of uh, 
Sacramento. Gotcha. But he's he's still he's still running between all these areas, which is he might have a line haul. He might have a designated route where he actually goes these routes all the time, and then, of course, that's 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 always trackable. You know, we we as truck drivers all have uh, we're all uh, documented in every place we go. So that's not a that's not uncommon. I mean, right. nowadays with murder, um, you don't see too much on serial murders anymore. It's because everyone has a camera. Yeah, like Ted Bundy could not have gotten away with what he got away with today. Oh yeah, no hell no. Oh no, <laughs> he no. He would have been caught. He would have been caught within probably the first one because of you know the, the corner cameras and everybody with a camera and, and everyone saw him with a Volkswagen with a cast on, they would have took his picture or something like that before he let him go. Yeah. I mean, this is how, and Dennis Rader, the same thing. I mean, there's so, all of us nowadays uh, would not have existed. Right. To a point because of the security that this United States has at this time. Now what you're getting is you're getting mass murders. Yeah. You're getting, you're getting where they're walking into a, into a, a you know, movie theater and shooting 50 people. Yeah, or at a concert you know, or, or a club. Or, 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 yeah. In this case, they walk into a house and they walk into a house with people in there that are, uh, they leave the couple alive, maybe because they wanted it to be discovered as soon as possible. Right? See, yes. And, you know, we were talking about that, too, because almost except for in one of the, you know, the lady in Washougal, I think she lived alone. But in the other ones, there were survivors. You know, yeah. it so was like basically they want. So which one happened first, Washougal? No, yes, yes. The Washugal one in Washougal happened, happened first. Then fourteen months later, the yeah. Okay, how long did it take for them to discover the body? Um, actually, it was a couple days. A couple days, and the other ones are discovered within within hours. Correct. Yes. Yes. So, so the person that killed went on, and he decided that he probably stayed in the area where it was, and he, he, he sat around waiting for it to be discovered, and, and it took too long with the first one. So the second one, he comes along and he kills. Then he sits back there and he, and he says, I want this discovered right away. So what do they do? He leaves witnesses that will, you know, stumble into it right away, and all of a sudden there it is. He's probably sitting in the audience out there watching what happens, and he's doing that with with both with these other cases in, in Moscow as well as in Salem. In Salem. Yeah. So these other cases are discovered right away, right? So this is a pattern, I would say. So the next time you have another murder set up there, there'll be there'll be witnesses there. Why? Because he wants it to be discovered right away. Gotcha. Makes the most sense. He wants to sit there and watch watch, watch all the media hype. This yeah. Is a, this is about, uh, you know... It, Putting the uh, the country in a, in a spasm is what it is. It, a tizzy, yeah. I mean, because, I mean, with the one out of Moscow, they were trying to, I mean, they have been saying since November 16th, when this finally hit, you know, big news, um, that there is a stalker involved and everything, but nobody can produce any proof that there was a stalker. No, they're not going to either. Yeah. They're not going to. Yeah, this is a random act. These are, these are set at random. Yeah, uh, they may he may have watched over it a little bit and saw what's going on, but he's 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 emboldened. If this is his third set, I mean, in other words, if he's a 
if he's a serial, is he's emboldened by the idea that people don't even see what they see. Yeah. Right. You. you I've, I've tried to explain to Scott and other people. I said, now, people on the real world, they watch what's going on around them, but they don't understand what's going on around them because they don't know. Right. Like, like you could take a person that, let's say, walk across a mall and it was abducted into a, a van, let's say. Right. And there's a scuffle in the front. Now, someone watching it happen might, might think, oh, they're just lovers. They're having a spat. Nothing to think about, Right. And the only time they, 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 they think it's something different is when all of a sudden in the news they're looking for a certain person. They say, hey, that looks like that person that was in the van. Right. Then they come back and they recall things like that. But at the time, nobody looks at you. You don't go to a bank and sit there and wait for it to be robbed, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, so in other words, you, you, you'd be sitting there a long darn time waiting for something to happen. That's true. <laughs> you know. So people don't do that. That's my they problem. Go their, they go about their regular lives. Right. And they, they see people their regular way. They, they always look on the positive. They don't look on the negative. They don't look at someone, oh, that's an evil person. They say, oh, well, that's, that's a nice what he's doing for that nice lady. He's taking the groceries out to her car. Not, right. not understanding that he's going to kidnap her and take her somewhere else they don't they don't think about that they think she's he's just being nice right so so everything is being everyone looks in the world as being this is a great world only when the evilness of the world is discovered do they have second thoughts now look at all this look at look at the drama that's created in the in the colleges everyone's afraid to walk around people right. are saying well i got a knife for protection those guys don't have to worry about it when they're walking around. They're out in daylight. They're, this, this happened at night. Did everyone happen at night? Did the Washougal happen at night? Yeah. Did they, Salem happen at night? They all happened, yeah, they all happened between 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. All right. Well, so, then, you know, you can go and party until 2 o'clock and everything's okay. <laughs> right? There you, there you go, Scott. We can stay till bar 30. <laughs> You just don't go home. Yeah. Because if you go home, you're going to get killed, right? By, by the randomness of the, of, the, of the event. Right. And this is paranoia. This is what this guy's creating is paranoia. Yeah. We'll see. And that, that's and, exactly what, you know. And that's what, this is what runs America anymore. It's paranoia. Right. That's, yeah. you know, that's they, true. That's true. You know, yeah. and unfortunately, with the with social media and everything, it it's like amped up even further. You know. Well, if social media, just imagine, you know, thirty years ago, we had the newspapers and the, and the CBS News at night. Right. What do you have now? You got fifty different news channels. Right. And you have and every like one of instant them is reporting on... differently on what it is, and yeah. the, and 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 the and the media is 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 constant. We have like what we call the talking heads, right? Where they all sit there and they, they bring in different experts to talk right. about what where we're going to go with this. So we, everyone has this opinion. They're all playing out on it. And this whole case that's in Moscow, that's what they're doing. They're playing it all out with the talking heads. Everybody knows about it. That's, right. that's, that's what's going on. This is all about uh, the big hype of social media. Yeah. Everybody knows it right away. This is this is is instant instant news. 
Wow. And this is what that guy wants. He wants instant news. He didn't want it. He wants it to happen right away while he's in the area. See, and you know, that I think that's it right there. And, you know, it, I don't know. It just, it just bugged me that, you know, nobody's looking at everything. <laughs> well, you might have something there with, with your, where your, where your mind's at. With our, you, you have to yeah. look at you have to look at it as it, it, you have to tear it down and, and look at it in perspective, right? Um, and it's the little things that are going to bite them. It's, it's it's in the details. That's why I titled that on my uh, on that blog "Guilty Details." It's always in the details, right? Right. It's, it's not the, it's not about the whole story. It's about what happens in the story. All the little things that happen that come along the way, right? That's, okay. that's, that's, it's like the legal system, like, like I said, going back to the legal system, where everything is in degrees right. of crime. You're, 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 certain, you're, you're sentenced because of the degree of your crime. You're not, not, not the fact that you are a murderer or whatever. It's, a, it's what degree of the crime did you commit based upon a lot of variable inconsistencies in your life. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, Scott. Oh, there you yes. are. I was like, are you still over there? He's lost. He is, he's probably asleep. I was taking a nap. <laughs> hey, quit waking me up. No. <laughs> no, I'm over here. I'm, a little sidetracked here, but that's okay. I was just, I'm just listening. I'm just listening because it's a good conversation. So, Tim, you had another question for him. No, I told you I couldn't remember because I didn't bring my notes. Oh. <laughs> Why do you have to put me on the spot like that? That's my job. I know. Well, That's my job. I know. So, there's um, only three of us here, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's only three of us here. And... On, the, on the conversation, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so um, I did have a question, though, about um, the whole things. When, when you were arrested and everything, or after you went to jail and you started, you know, like giving your confessions and everything, did they have you sit down with a counselor or like a therapist no. or any? You never sat with no. any therapist or anything? No, I, I, they, they know I'm in prison for what I'm in prison for. Okay. I've, I've always, I've always had, I, when I came to prison, they wanted me to go up and talk to a counselor. And I, I told the guy, I said, I don't need any drugs to help me sleep. Right. I know why I'm here. I know that I put myself here. Right. And I am comfortable with the idea of where I put myself. I don't like it here, but that's okay. Yeah. I'm comfortable with the uh, with with why how I got here. Right. So, so they never the gave you a psyche said, valve or anything. Oh, they they wanted to. Okay. I had the one that said they came up with this this scheme. They bring in like thirty different people into a classroom, and they said we're going to give you a pocket calculator if you complete the the the, the, the summary. Right. Yeah. And I looked at him. I said, is this mandatory? And they said, well, no, it's not. I said, well, then I don't need a calculator, so I'm not going to take it. And then I stood in front of the class. I said, now, everybody else, just remember this. You fill out one of these questionnaires when you come to prison, and you put your name on it. And there's no right answer or wrong answer, but you're going to answer anyway. Well, if you answer that, remember when you come up for parole, this whole questionnaire might come up in your face from what you made when you first got here. Right. And now at parole, you're, it may have a very detrimental response to what how, how you're going to be paroled or not. Right. Just remember that. Everything you put on paper in prison comes back. I was going to say, it comes back to bite you in the ass at some yes, point. it 
does. Yeah. You do not want to write, your, you don't want to put paperwork on yourself. Right. That's a term you use in prison. You don't want to put paperwork on yourself. Right. So in other words, you don't want people, uh, you don't want to answer questions. You don't want to do anything like that because if you put your name on anything like that, it, and that's in your counselor, you go to your regular counselor, mm-hmm. they take everything literally. Right. Everything is literally, and everything is in the worst case scenario. So you don't give them anything to write about. Exactly. You leave it alone. But however, in here, there's a lot of people that have a they have pill lines where people go down and get their medications so they can be to any sleep better or just forget that they're in prison. Right. And that's no. what the pill lines for. Right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. You know. You know they're, they're not, mean, they don't need the medication, but they take it anyway so they can forget where they are. Yeah, that's true. Well, and the I reason want to why be I... able to wake up in the morning and know who I am, right? <laughs> and know your name. Yeah, I want to be able to know who I am. Yeah. Oh, so in other words, I mean, this was a joke back when I was, but you have to remember, I've been out since 1997, but um, the joke when I was in there was um, the Thorazine Shuffle. Everybody was yeah, on the Thorazine right. Shuffle, you know? Yeah, you all go down the pill line, you're all standing there waiting for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And then you get it under, and some of them cheek it. Oh, yeah. So they can bring it back and sell it to somebody else. Yeah. Because it gets the other guy high, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. I had, no. I had a selling like that. He would he would cheek his pill, bring it back, and he'd sell it for envelope, but he'd never write a letter. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there you right? go. <laughs> so in the meantime, he's 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 bouncing off the walls. Why? Because he's not taking his meds. He's right. in the cell with me, and I'm like, why don't you take your meds? Because <laughs> I need envelopes to not write people. I need envelopes that I'm never going to write on. Yeah. <laughs> no, the reason why I asked you that is because I wanted to know if you if they had ever diagnosed you as, you know, a sociopath or a, you know what I mean? So well, you they know, just basically said I was. Okay, then the, here's my, no, because, I mean, that makes sense, what they're saying. But at the same well, no, they, time, well, no, because they want you to fit that mold is what, I'm, what I was well, trying to get they've at. Never, so. I, I, I've always shut the door on them, so I've never sat down and actually had a psych test. Okay. So I don't want a psych test. I just said, you know, I already know what's going on in this world. I know what's going on in my life. Right. I'm in prison because I put myself here. Exactly. And that's what exactly. I and that's what I did. Yeah. Okay. So then so my next. No point. Yeah. Okay. No, my next question would be then, and I think that this is I didn't know, you know, how to address this, but do you have remorse for what you did? Not just the fact that I, you're sorry that you're in prison, but do you have remorse for the acts that you committed? Yeah, there's. Uh, it's like it's like uh, Shawshank Redemption when uh, Morgan Freeman goes in front of the pro board. Right. And he asked him, "Are you are you are you rehabilitated?" And he says, "I don't really don't know what that word means." Right. Right. Because he's been 40 years in prison, and and uh, it's not a, you know what do you really want to hear? You know, it's what do you really want to hear? Right. Uh, and of course. I reflect upon what I did to get here, and I regret what I've done to be here. Mm-hmm. Do I have remorse? Now, I don't know the people that I, you know, I know the people I killed. I don't know their family. Right. So I don't know who they are, and, and I'm sure if I were to meet them, I would have, I would try to come up with some kind of words to make it better, but I know damn well there's no words that make it better. No, that's true. That's they want true. their family back. They want their family back. They don't right. want to talk with me. They hate me. Right. 
right? They hate me, so why why am I? I can't. There's nothing I can say to make it all better. That's true. But do I ever? I I I, I don't like being in prison. Okay, that's, no, that's yeah. one of the things. But at the same time, I wish I I hadn't done this because I I I destroyed my family. Right. I I'm not. My kids are not are, are victims too. Right. No, that's you true. Know? And I, I love my kids. I don't. And I, I did. I. That was the biggest problem I had was, I, I realized when I was in county jail. A few days into it, I was going like, "Man, I really threw my life away, and not only my life, but I threw everybody that I ever knew, all my friends and relatives. All have I have to come up with a different idea who Keith Jefferson is. Right. I threw everything under the bus." I mean, I threw it away. There's no going back. Right. Uh, yes, I wish I could go back and change everything and, and make everything better again, but I can't. Right, no. And so I regret what I've done. Uh, remorse, okay. you can call it regret or you call it remorse. Right. I feel bad for the, uh, you know, for the families. I, I, I really do, but I don't know who they are, but I also know they hate my guts. And they're, right. They're not, they don't want to hear about me. That goes along with my daughter with her going and talking to my victims' families. Yeah. She goes in there and she wants to apologize to them for what I did. Right. Which I find to be crazy. I was like, how can she apologize for what you did? Yeah, she's trying to apologize for what I did. And I'm thinking that gives her the foot foot in the door. She's addicted to sympathy and she wants them to say, well, it wasn't your fault. And it, it, it lays down a certain guidelines of, of things to say right and they 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 they, conf- they they go to her and they hug her and they 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 make her feel try to make her feel better that she's not responsible right right and that's that's the whole basis of her whole show is that when she was out there you know going to the my victim's family she says she wanted their sympathy and it wasn't so much about saying i was sorry right no, I, I mean, uh, I understand. Yeah. No, and I think that that's kind of important to let people know, too, is that, you know, that uh, I, don't, I don't know how to put this, but you know what I'm talking about, Scott? No, I'm just waiting. No, thanks. I'm over here just, I'm letting you throw yourself underneath the bus. That's all are good. Go, are you going to back over me when I'm done? Yeah, pretty much, no, yeah. Cause, no, because I think it's important to let everybody know, too, because, I mean, We've established already that you don't fit that mold. You don't fit the thing. And a lot of people are trying to say, well, he's just a sociopath or he's just a psychopath or, you know, all this other stuff. Well, that's, that's a common, that's a common rule. Right. But, I mean. You kill more than one person, you're a psychopath or yeah. sociopath or something along those lines. You're going to be one or the other or both. Yeah. And Scott and I have been. around it. I mean, a clinical psychologist will come in, would come in and say, hey, uh, um. Yeah, we rule that this is my study. This is what I studied under. So you, you fit the mold, and that's what they're right. saying. Right. They're not going to. They're not going to analyze me for what I am. They're going to analyze for what they were taught in school, and this is what they're going to come up with as a conclusion. Right. I mean, because Scott and I have done a lot of different, you know, research on, you know, the typical characteristics of both of those, and I was sitting here thinking, you don't, you don't fit those. <laughs> Does he, Scott? Well, I no, was actually, I had a, I had Robert Shug, which is a professor down in, in Long Beach, California, uh, Cal State. 
and he came in and tested me on my uh, IQ abilities. Okay. And uh, there was one test that he gave me that I outscored everyone he ever tested. Oh. I mean, the, the, the one test he had, I guess it was like the, the nearest one was like 76 or 78% that anyone ever tested on. I scored a 98. Wow. It. And it had to do with memory. <laughs> Go figure. Shocker. Shocker. It had to do with gambling, gambling and, 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 and it was a gambling test. And it was about card counting and different things like that. And I was able to. I played the game, and, and, he, and he actually wanted to test me again because he didn't think the test result was right, so he gave me another test, and I scored 99. Wow. Go, so you know, go figure. <laughs> go figure. Yeah. No, because, I my mean... my IQ, he said my IQ was like 115 okay. or something like that at the time. That was that was considered when the standard person is 100. Yes. But I yes. have been tested. I was tested at one time at 165. Holy catfish, Scott! That's bigger than you. Yeah, I'm actually shocked. <laughs> my my, you know that was like there. Menza, it's like Menza being a, a member of Menza or some damn thing. Yeah, Scott Scott never joined Menza because he thought they meant something else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Scott's like, well, no, I don't, I don't have a period. Sorry. <laughs> so what I don't the, want the Menza pause. The basis, the basis of an IQ is what? I mean, just to know how smart you're, but I'm the I'm the dumbest <laughs> smart person I know that. You know, Scott, I say that about ourselves, too. <laughs> well, that's true. The, the whole basis of an IQ test is to be able to follow patterns. Yeah. Just well, because you have the brains doesn't mean you're going to use them. This is true. That's me every day. Scott's I a, a hold-my-beer kind of guy, so. I, I am. I got this high <laughs> IQ, and on paper, guys, I look like a freaking genius. They're like, man, you should join Menza because you're brilliant. Guys, I am a Dumbass. <laughs> like, on paper, I look great. In my real life, there's t- every day, every freaking day, I step back and look at myself and go, really? Are you mentally disabled? Do you how need a helmet? How did you even survive the day? Like, how'd, you even get, how'd you even get your <laughs> shoes on, dude? Yeah. No, because, I mean, and that's just it is, um, is, I mean, it's about, like, realizing that, you know, not everybody fits a certain narrative. And when they don't fit that narrative, you know, we need to make them fit that narrative. You understand what I mean? Well, it's because everybody has to fit into uh, a, a category, so yeah. to speak. Like, if you do have somebody no. who is like has Down syndrome, you go, okay, they fit into the category of they're mentally disabled. If you have somebody who is a a killer, you know, they have to fit into because everybody likes packaging. Yes, and that's I think that's honestly, in my opinion, that's what it comes down to is everybody wants to know that. Everything that happens, whether it's criminal activity or in just regular life, has a category that they can associate it with. Yes. So, so it's either bedwetting or animal torture or fire. Yeah. Setting fire, right? Yeah. Right. So, in later in life, later in life, I have set a few fires, okay. only to see whether or not it would curve the idea of murder. Which is what I, that's the other one I was going to bring yeah. up. We, we, I wanted to get into the fire part. We're, we've only got like four minutes left on this call. But the next yeah, but one. I, I can't call you right back because I'm all cramped up here. I got, oh. I need to get some water and, and move around a bit. It's cold in here. It's oh, cold. shoot. I'm sorry, bud. So, so we'll do this again next week. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll de- but, let's but, touch yeah, on the fires next the week. Four minutes about setting fires is that 
there, there was a time where I, I was actually waiting. I, I was overweight. My truck was overweight. I needed to get past the scale house. So I parked on an exit before the, the, the second, the last exit before the scale house. And I, and I set a small fire in the medium to get the, the, the scale house to shut down in front of me to go fight the fire. Oh. <laughs> well, you know what? That's creative thinking. That is. Uh, just just <laughs> like Keith and I, we're, we're talking about creative logbooking. This is, this is Cottonwood, California. This is at Cottonwood, California. I shut the, they, they, they shut the, the scale house down. They ran up there. That was like a couple thousand dollars away. So I had to sneak on by, and I was hoping they'd, they'd shut her down. And I figured, what the hell? Why not just set a small grass fire, get the fire department involved, and get, get them on up there? And that's what they did. So, yeah, you know what? And it's cottonwood. I've been through that scale many a time when I, I was over the road, I so I can say, I can relate. Yeah. That's thinking outside so the box. The second exit right before then was right off in the off the off ramp. There the on the on ramp right there on the left side between the the, the, the roadway I was on and I five was just a little grass, which is probably a half an acre, and I. It burned. It burned really well while they uh, while I crossed the scale. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I just think that's thinking outside the box. Honestly, I mean, I shouldn't me be wrong. laughing at this shit, but it's funny because Keith and I have talked about it before, and him and I were kind of giggling about it because, you know, we we share trucker stories and things like yeah, that. Totally. <laughs> but, yeah. There, oh my goodness. We, yeah, there's things that I've done. Like I shut down I ninety. I told you about that, right? The 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 nail story. Yeah, the nail. Story. Yeah, <laughs> that's another good one that we should talk about too uh, next we Saturday. We should talk about that. I shut down Interstate ninety back in in eighty five, right in there, over uh, to drum up business for a friend of mine that fixed tires. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> well, you know what? Box, However, you I get the word out. Nails, I threw a whole box out there. Anyway, <laughs> wow! That was our one minute warning, guys. Let's wrap okay, this one up. Okay, all right. Well, we'll uh, we'll cancel this. Uh, I've got to go get some water in me, and, and it's kind of cool in here, so I'm all cramped up. So we'll talk again next Saturday. All, all right, right. but I'm sure you'll call me during the week anyway. Take care, and I'll talk to you, okay, buddy? Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Wow. That was that, – I think that was a good call. What do you think? You know what? I mean, that call – touched me i mean like emotionally touched me oh like not in a uh, no it didn't touch me like that i have candy kind of a way okay i'm just asking i'm just asking yeah so i mean like i said it the raw emotion that i heard from him there you can't fake that you know what i mean right right so i believe that these people who say he's a sociopath because you and i both know sociopaths have no sense of empathy or like emotion like that right and i can kind of almost understand how he can compartmentalize it with, um, you know, he, the fact that he doesn't know these people's families, he knew his victims, right. and he can't bring them back. So I think he's come to, to terms with that. Yeah. Um, I, I found it interesting that he does realize that, you know, his friends, family, and children are, are victims of this as well. Because yes. he said something that really got me, which was that, um, you know, he left all these people in his wake that had to, that, that knew him that have to think of a different way of viewing him. Right. Exactly. You know, and exactly. really ask themselves who, who, you know, who Keith Jesperson is. Exactly. I mean, in, and you know, it. I guess it kind of. I think the reason why it, I got so emotional about it is because I'm, you know, I'm a mother, 
and everything. And I know you love your children and stuff, but why is that? Just ignore it. Okay. <laughs> I had the thing in my ear. but um, Yeah, it came. I didn't it's all move good. It. But, you know, as a mother, it's like knowing that he cares that much about his children, too. You know what I mean? Right. Despite right, right. the fact that one of them is trying to make him out to be 20 times worse than what he was or is. Yeah. And I, I, you know, definitely. He, he doesn't fault her or, you know what I mean? It's not like he lays blame at her. He realizes what he did, but at the same time, he just wishes the truth would be told and not, you know, the fabrications. That's kind of the, the sense that I got of it, too, was that he just really is out for mm-hmm. the real story for the good or the ill to come out. Right. Rather than people believe that he's, I mean, he already knows he's kind of a monster for what he did. Well, he, yeah. That's, that's, that's true. That's true. I mean, anybody who can blatantly take the lives of eight people, you know what I mean? Right, right. Um, there has to be, there's something there. But, I mean, as far as calling him the devil or evil and stuff like that, I can't see that right now. Right. Uh, so, I'm sure that he's changed over the last 27 years that he's been in prison, too. So That's true, too, because he got arrested in 95. So. Right. So I think we're about 27 years in. Yeah. Um. So there's... There's definitely there's an evolution there because like I've said before we we all evolve um, in different ways, personality wise, emotionally, uh, mentally, things like that. Everything's uh, you know everything evolves. Um, so I I don't maybe maybe we're not seeing the person he was, and I'm pretty sure we're not. Oh, we're probably not, but he's not seeing the person we were back then either. Nah, that's true. You know what I mean? So really, you know, you can't really compare that. No, no, that's. Good point, good point. You know, and I mean, then he said it before. I mean, he said it and we said it with other cases, too, is unfortunately he made choices that weren't good. And you know what I mean? And people's lives were taken out of it. But we cannot bring those people back. But to move forward and you know what I mean? Like learn from that is, you know what I'm saying? Well, and then that, that, that's the whole thing. You know, you know, you can't bring these people back. Um, and I'm sure their families do miss them. I know that, you know, if anything happened to my children, I would I would miss them terribly for the rest of my life. Yes. You know, sometimes not so much my son. But, but you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, we I, all I would miss the intern occasionally, like when we need coffee. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Just kidding. Um, I love my son. I, just, I give him so much crap. I, just, I know, right? Kind of, I'm kind of a dick. Um, but but he, gives me, he gives it right back. It's not exactly, like one-sided. Exactly. But, I mean, I think it was... And I mean, I kind of got ahead of myself in asking him that question, but it's like it felt the moment felt right. You know yeah. what I mean? Because yeah. it's like, you know, I, I want people to know that, you know, he knows that he did wrong and that, you know. And like he said, he I mean, there's a difference between remorse and regret. Yes. You know, and I do believe he is truly regretful of what he did. And he doesn't just regret the fact that he got caught. You know, right? No, I, I I would agree with that. Yeah. So, all right, you ready to wrap this uh, one here? I up? am ready because I almost made a comparison with Cheetah Ng, and I didn't want to do that. <laughs> Not even close. Don't even bring Cheetah Ng in this conversation. <laughs> no, because he was talking about the lawsuit and everything earlier. Oh and yeah. I was like, yeah, I almost made a reference back then. I was like, nah. They're not. <laughs> Freaking Cheetah Ng. God dang. That was a bizarre ass story. <laughs> hey, 
Everybody deserves crunchy Cheetos. <laughs> if I ever run for a political office, that's the, the that's, that's the your platform, platform. <laughs> right there. Uh, no more soggy Cheetos. <laughs> crunchy Cheetos and everybody on everybody's uh, dinner and breakfast table. <laughs> that's right. And no flat soda pop. That's right. No flat. No crumble cookies. <laughs> and no crumble cookies. <laughs> Vote for Scott. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Just type in at BrutalNation. We should pop right up for you. Uh, you know, and you get the full story without any of my BS. Also, go on to Facebook and look up Brutal Nation. We're on there. We post the episodes to there as well, and yes. usually little tiny snippets. And join in the conversation. Yeah, join the conversation, man. Become part of the Brutal Nation. Yes. Can't stress that enough. <laughs> Citizenship for the nation is looking scary. That's right. You know what? We need to go out and multiply. That's right. And if you don't, then it means you're going to get soggy Cheetos and crumble That's cookies. That's right. Soggy Cheetos and crumble cookies. I put a hex on your Cheetos. <laughs> My God, we are horrible. This, is this took a turn for the worst, man. It did. This show's copyright 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved. And remember, if you're hearing any part of this podcast on anybody else's show, they're lying, David bastards. We'll catch you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.